Wait a second. This isn't your grandma's cancer show. Not your grandma's cancer show. I'm Tatum Duroc, and today we're talking about that time when treatment is over. And friends and family are so relieved that they say things like, "You're all good now, right?" Which isn't really a question, because you don't want to burst that bubble of letting them believe everything's okay. But actually, you might be left with lasting effects of your treatment, and it can be really tough knowing how to process that and where and who to talk to. So I have two amazing guests with me today. I've got Matt, who was 17 when they were diagnosed with brain tumors, and they've changed over time because that's seven years ago now. How they've coped, how they've looked at their diagnosis, how they deal with their day to day now. And with me, I've got Roisin, who was 28 when she was diagnosed. And Roisin, can you tell me? What was happening in your life at that time? Yeah, I was、um, sort of navigating working in hospitality during the pandemic, which was sort of immediately before diagnosis.、Um, I've been I've been working in bars, restaurants, and clubs,、um, very lively settings, and that just fell to nothing really.、Um, so just working in coffee shops then, I kind of. Um, was studying at the same time, so I would just do part-time work and、uh, went to home studying, and would have to learn how to navigate online,、uh, how to get through my uni work. So studying business,、um, yeah, and I loved it. I loved doing a part-time work. I loved the, the studying.、Um, I lived alone at the time. I had sort of a lot of independence. Feel flat to myself. I loved all that as well.、Um, obviously, until COVID, when it became a lot more isolating.、Um, but yeah, I、uh, would get out for cycles quite often as well during lockdown, and that was really my kind of go-to fitness.、Um, um, and just, I mean, I, I did get to a point then where I started to feel like I was in a bit. Of, Pain or a bit of distress, and I didn't know if that was due to COVID fatigue. You know, like everyone sort of had that、uh, that little moment of,、uh, you know, fed up and feeling a bit anxious.、Um, so I slowly started to lose motivation with another redundancy at work due to COVID,、um, and my studies started to kind of suffer.、Um, Yeah, and I had, I had been in pain quite a bit, so I was on、uh, medication. We thought that was for my wisdom teeth, so I had been booked in for wisdom teeth removal at the dental hospital.、Um, unfortunately, that was cancelled due to the pandemic. So directly before diagnosis, really <laughs> wasn't a pleasant time.、Uh, navigating online studying,、uh, trying to find work that I wouldn't. Be made redundant from, and living through a bit of pain and anxiety. Really, that was、uh, yeah, life pre-diagnosis for me. 
That sounds really tough, especially as pre-COVID, it sounded like you were out and about and doing things and working in hospitality and being around a lot of people to suddenly have your life change quite drastically. And then some of the things about COVID then masking how you were feeling. So you were getting pain but no one was feeling that well. So it was maybe a little easier or a little bit more easier to put aside, but kind of to compartmentalize it. So when did the pain get so bad that you were like, okay, I've I've got to go and see somebody now? So initially, um, I had been living in pain for quite a bit before. Um, and it was all around my jaw. They thought it was TNG. They thought it was... Um, Wrist and teeth. Um, I was booked in in April 2020 to have the extraction done. And I have, at the time now, I see it as a completely irrational fear of the dentist. Um, and yeah, so I'd been asked to be sedated for the, the procedure. Um, with that being cancelled, um, I had to then sit and sort of wait for an appointment. And then come the October 2020, I started feeling this little pea-sized lump on my jawbone. Yeah, that's when I really started to, you know, panic. Because I'm thinking, what on earth? you know, a lump, automatically, your head goes straight to the worst-case scenario. Um, so that's when I started getting in touch with the dental hospital again and my GP. Um, I had several doctors sort of fully feed up checking my face out and none of them could quite place what they thought it was. Um, so I'd be sent in for x-rays and uh, they were trying to do like needle biopsies from inside my mouth. Um, it's wisdom teeth thinking that could remedy um, the pain and the, the lump. But unfortunately that didn't and I was put on quite a long course of antibiotics. One wouldn't work and then another wouldn't work, so they'd switch that. Um, that kind of went on for about three three or four months before the diagnosis. Um, so yeah, I'd also contacted my GP to say that I was just generally feeling very unwell and my anxiety was through the roof. Um, and I had been already sort of on a course of sertraline for my anxiety. And my GP suggested that I bump up my medication. Maybe that would help. Maybe I was just feeling this fatigue and anxiety through this pandemic that we were all experiencing. So I guess I, I kind of muted my feelings a little bit to, to be like, right, it's not only me that's going through this. You know, everyone's, everyone's feeling this way just now. Um, yeah, but the, the pain itself was excruciating. It, it was... Um, it did get to a point where I couldn't ignore it any longer. Um, and obviously the lump was a huge red flag. It sounds like such a lot. To have that anxiety already, to have almost a base level in your body of something's not right, and to have those delays, antibiotic after antibiotic, and each time something's not working, of course it's leading to that question of what if this is something more when they told you your diagnosis did they tell you at that time what they were 
going to do to your jaw? Not entirely. Um, I think because this was quite a rare situation to be in. So with osteosarcoma, it's generally a cancer that's found in the longer bones. So your arms, your legs. Um, yeah, I just didn't fit into the kind of status quo of, of someone who would have osteosarcoma. Um, and right to view my jaw was sort of it, it was completely um, unheard of for my doctors anyway. They, they hadn't dealt with a case like it. So at that time with the diagnosis, there was a lot of um, uncertainty about exactly how it would go. Um, there was a general sort of, you will need chemotherapy, um, you will need surgery. Um, the extent of that surgery, we couldn't discuss at the initial appointment because we just didn't know at that point. Um, there had to be the usual sort of multidisciplinary meetings with a few doctors and a lot of discussions and a little bit of a wait to exactly find out what was going to happen. Um, Pre-surgery though, they, they made up my chemotherapy plan. So it was around a four week wait from diagnosis to starting chemotherapy. Um, they had offered me the option of fertility treatment because of my age, I don't have children. And what if I did want to have children in the future, but there would be quite a significant delay on the chemotherapy if they were to do that. So uh, I opted against it. And yeah, we started four weeks later on um, three different chemo drugs, just straight into the hospital and onto the conveyor belt of the NHS, really. When did the impact, knowing that the impact was going to be long lasting and long term, sort of hit you? Not for a while. I, I kind of went numb um, with the diagnosis. It's like there was this weird switch in me that just went from this anxious person I'd always known myself to be to like fight mode all of a sudden. It's like that's when I really felt the mind and the body disconnecting. Um, and it's a really kind of no noticeable moment for me that I just, it was like a light switch, you know, I just, and I never really thought of the longer term, I really just went into a sort of day by day or week by week. I didn't have any expectations. I just, yeah, I went, I went quite, quite numb with it, but, and it was definitely fight, um, fight instinct, I reckon, at that point. Yeah, and I think that's what a lot of people sort of that haven't had that experience don't necessarily always appreciate that when you're in it, you are in that survival mode of whatever it's going to take to get through, whether that be numbness, whether that being so present in, in the moment, whether that be fighting or fawning or all those other different versions of it. And sometimes it is when treatment starts to come towards an end or start to quieten that the impact is sometimes when it becomes into the forefront. Where are you with mm -hmm. your treatments and surgeries now? So um, I have been cancer-free for about two and a half years now. Um, thankfully, that's the good news. Um, and yeah, I'm still uh, going under sort of surgeries, uh, mostly reconstructive surgeries, 
um, to my jaw and my face. Yeah, I've, uh, my most recent surgery was September and that was for a fat draft uh, into my cheek just to kind of give it a bit more symmetry um, up to the other side. And, but unfortunately, uh, there's been some recent issues with that fat draft. Um, so only in the last two weeks, I've been back in and out of the hospital um, having little procedures done to try and sort out the, the infected graft. I know the, the listeners can't see me right now, but I have a big plaster on the side of my face and that dressing's getting changed every two days at the moment. Um, I'm also uh, receiving some dental treatment because of the sort of major operation that I had. They had to remove like a quarter of my teeth down with the right-hand side of my jaw. Um, so they're under the process of making me my dentures and um, we had implants were fitted last year but unfortunately one of them failed so I didn't have teeth and then I didn't have teeth and then I had them again and then I had to take them out again because this implant failed um, so now we know that the implants are good and they're, they're making my new teeth for me so I'm hoping oh my within God. the next couple of months I'll have them, yeah. Yes. Yeah, that is an that is a huge amount of adjustment because how you described the surgery, it affected how you how you breathe, how you eat, you know, and that difference between having teeth, not having teeth, like that is such a huge thing to have one day and then taken away and then come back. What I'm sensing is a real kind of um, you've had to be incredibly flexible and adjustable going through all of this. It seems like so many things haven't quite gone to gone to plan. No, I think that's the roller coasters. Of, um, as you learn throughout the journey, the roller coaster of cancer really isn't it. Mm-hmm. It's probably best at times not to have high expectations, but also stay positive um, as well, not to be too low, but. Yeah, just keeping a kind of middle ground because it's it's quite an unpredictable journey and it can surprise you at times on both positive and negative levels, really. Um, So, yeah. So keeping with that kind of idea, what was something that surprised you that you hadn't anticipated, good or bad, a side effect perhaps that hadn't crossed your head that you might have? My confidence during the process, which is quite quite astounding to me because it's something I've never been an overly confident person but I felt like I had a little bit more confidence like I was quite happy to be outdoors and have my scars and my wounds at that point and I was um, through chemotherapy I'd lost all of my hair I didn't really necessarily feel the need to wear the hat or the scarf I was just you know proud to just be alive at that moment in time, I think, and it just didn't bother me how I looked. And that was something that really struck me. So I suppose that's a positive. Um, but I found that when my hair started growing back in, um, maybe public sympathy kind of dropped a little. People didn't really understand that I was going through something. So I, I noticed quite a difference in my confidence at that point. It started to go down again. Another positive would be the anxieties that I'd had before, which were quite irrational. Now, in hindsight, there would be things that I'd overthink or 
you know, thoughts that I'd have that just weren't realistic. Now I'm very rational with my anxieties because they are real life threats and real life situations. So um, I've actually managed to come off all of the medication for anxiety since my treatment. I really wanted to kind of go through the grieving process and really feel um, what had happened and work through it. And it was just something I couldn't do with the medication. So, and now I'm, I'm, I still don't take the medication. I just let myself sort of sit with feelings and work through them. So they're, they're all positive sort of side effects of going through that. Um, stuff that I hadn't expected. Uh, I think we all have this picturesque view of what cancer is because you see it on the telly and you see people going through it and you don't really understand the, the mental side of things. So uh, the kind of long-lasting fatigue, the brain fog, the memory loss, it's, it's all stuff I hadn't expected to really last to this point, which I still experience it. It's, it's an effect of the chemotherapy, which I understand now. I thought, that's me, I'm done. Hopefully a year later, everything will be all finished and, and I'll be back to normal sort of memory and concentration, but it just it hasn't hasn't quite gone that way. I've got lists everywhere <laughs> in it, case I forget something. Yeah, and it can affect every single part of your life, right? Because it's your brain. Like we Definitely. we take it everywhere. And so that fogginess, that forgetfulness, it can be really disorienting. Like you yeah. said, it can be really useful to know what's causing it. Because when you're by yourself feeling it, you feel like you're going crazy. And, Definitely, and yeah. you know, wondering like what else is going on? Like, is my brain broken or is it in my brain? Or, you know, your brain can go to all kinds of different places. And I know for you, you had you've expressed that numbness that that came with kind of just getting through. And then you did something that was was quite different <laughs> to what you would have done maybe before which was um, doing a comedy set. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about <sighs> that and what was going on in your body as you were doing um, your five minutes of stand-up? Um, yeah, so for quite a while after I finished my treatment, I found I still had this complete disconnection that happened on that day of diagnosis, that switch um that was quite long lasting and it was a disconnection from the mind and body. I just couldn't deeply feel anything. I didn't have feelings of excitement or elation or, you know, that real buzz that you get when something good happens yeah. in your life. It just, I just wasn't feeling that. I wasn't getting belly laughs like I used to. Like, um, so something popped up one day. It was for, it was actually for cancer research. And I thought, do you know what? If I fail at this, it's for charity, it's all for a good cause. Like, someone's running out of this, so it's fine, I'll do a little bit of fundraising, I'll see if I can be funny again, and hopefully it'll help me, bring me back into myself. So I um, signed up for a six-week course with a group of really lovely people who I still remain in contact with, they're all some of the funniest people I know, ironically. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I got to week four of the course and got a phone call from more surgery. Um, 
So actually, you had to then at that point say, look, guys, I can't do the short end in six weeks. Um, I don't know how I'm going to recover from this next surgery or maybe. And yeah, on the night of the final show, there's around 200 people there. And I went to support the group and I was sitting in the crowd and as my friends were getting up on the stage to do the five minute sets, I had this burst of energy in me. I was just really wanted to get up on that stage. Um, so I went up to the course leader and she said, absolutely, we will get you on, no problem. And I quickly looked at my notes on my phone that I hadn't looked at for two weeks, jotted down some bullet points in my hand and took a few deep breaths. Um, and then she called me up on stage and I managed to hit my five minutes flat. I got a load of laughs. Um, and as, as soon as I stepped off the stage, this huge adrenaline course through me, it went through my head and my body. And I thought, that's it, I'm back. That's the, the mind and body are back in sync here. Wow. Um, so that was a real light such moment again. Oh, I love that because so many things happen and I think dissociation and disconnection are really, really common, and, you know, as, as part of our bodies to kind of keeping us really safe. But then, you know, when we stay in that disconnection for too long, it can really, really start to weigh us down so finding those those moments and as you were talking I could feel the adrenaline I was like 200 people you know you haven't looked at your notes for two weeks you've got it jotted down on your hand like yeah that release of happy adrenaline can absolutely be the beginning of like bringing yourself back together um Thank you so much, um, Roisin, for for sharing that with us. I'd love to bring Matt in at this point. Um, Matt, how has it been listening to Roisin? Uh, it's well, uh, massive props for the comedy set because uh, <laughs> yeah, that's that's incredible. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, very you know, a lot of what uh, Roisin said has been yeah, quite quite relatable, um, and especially saying about um, like lists everywhere. God, you know, I lists everywhere, all over the place. Um, yeah, I think that, that brain fog and sort of the the memory loss and fatigue, long term effects. Yeah, very very relatable. But um, I can't go over the comedy sets. That's so fun. <laughs> <laughs> and Matt, <laughs> tell us about um, what was happening in your life. You were seventeen when you were diagnosed. Yeah, so I was seventeen in two thousand seventeen, um, and I was uh, I was in, at college in my last month of a level three BTEC in IT. I got my place at uni confirmed. I was going to go to Liverpool. I was super thrilled, thinking you know massive step in my life. Physically, I was pretty worn out. Um, energy levels were very low. I was coming home from college some days about one o'clock in the afternoon and just going straight to bed. Um, I was having a bit of like vision loss and stuff, but I just put everything down to stress and, mm. and uh, anticipation, anxiety and stuff. But then I, I was rushed to the eye clinic one day. Um, I'd had all of a sudden, my eye, one of my eyes drifted to the left and went off a bit. And I had uh, an MRI on the day of the Sheffield Marathon. Um, and very quickly knew something was wrong 
going for an MRI. Um, and I ended up uh, Googling online thinking, you know, how do I know it's not serious? And the internet told me, as long as the doctor doesn't call back that day, everything should be fine. You're not an emergency case. And it got to 20 to 11 at night. I was just about to go to bed thinking everything's all right. And I got a call from the neurosurgery um, asking me to come in the next morning to uh, end floor at the hospital. And um, I know I've said this to many people before, but I uh, thought you said M floor. So I turned up at the hospital the next morning at seven o'clock and found myself on the maternity ward. Very confused. Uh, (laughs) Matt, that so illustrates that, like almost getting out of the gate. If I just make it through this day and then at the (laughs) last minute... And also just what a new world it is, like to know where to go in the hospital. Easy mistake to make to end up in maternity, but it is all part of this absolute disorientation that happens. So so you get brought into the the right area. um, And how long did it take for them to give you your diagnosis? So... Initially, they sort of sat me down after the a very kind woman from the maternity ward took me up to the correct floor. They sat me down on a bed and said, uh, the MRI sort of shows there's at least one growth in my head. At first, they, was, they thought it was a cyst. Um, but then I, after another couple of scans that day um, and a few blood tests to rule out other things, um, sort of sat down um, with me and my mum um, and said uh, about four o'clock in the afternoon that um, I'd got two growths in on my in my head, uh, one on my pituitary, one on my pineal gland. Um, but they they wouldn't use word brain tumours. Um, they wanted to wait until I could have a biopsy to determine the type uh, if they were tumours because they weren't sure. Um, but it was. Pretty much that same day. Um, the doctor did sort of say, they probably are brain tumours, but we can't say. Um, but it was all very sort of blase, you know, just sort of, yeah, you think we think you've got brain tumours. Um, and then like, we were just left to process that. So, yeah. Being told that in kind of a blase way, again, I think that how you hear the information does mm. affect how you're even beginning that processing of it like do you respond in a blase way do you lighten it do you um like where does it go and how long does that impact last for do you feel that you understood at that time that the treatment was going to leave you without a functioning pituitary gland And, and did your pineal gland come back on so I think I was listening to one of your podcasts you did um, with, I can't remember which one. It was the LGBTQ um, one. And I, I know you're talking to um, Scott. I think you said about sort of how things are mentioned to patients can totally alter their experience and how they see their own diagnosis. And for me, that was a massive thing because, yeah, it was just sort of said, we think you've probably got two brain tumours Um when I had the MRI the same day, uh, the last one, the doctor said, would you like to see them? Um, so I, I went and looked at them and um, 
so I sort of saw my own diagnosis as just like quite ordinary. It wasn't treated as anything major. Um, I think having been in a sort of a spotty place mentally and physically at college, I sort of saw all of a sudden this like life in hospital just being wheeled to appointments and wheeled to treatments and um, just sitting around. I sort of saw it as a bit of like time off in a way. Um, so it was, yeah, it was weird because I saw my own diagnosis as sort of like a good thing um, rather than what it was, which was a massive life-altering thing. Um, so yeah, it's yeah, a bit of a difficult one. Part of seeing it as a good thing were there some opportunities that came about or some changes that wouldn't have happened? Was that kind of the way that you were attributing it being a good thing? Yeah, definitely. I mean, sort of that break from education. I thought at 17, I thought, oh, this is great. I'm just, you know, once I'm out of hospital in like, hopefully a couple of weeks, um, just be able to sit home and do whatever for a while. Um, but I sort of, I think because I was introduced to different charities and got to do little bits of volunteering or was in different sort of like, um, you know, a couple of social media campaigns. Um, I had a lot of, thankfully, a lot of the um, hospital staff around me were really supportive and, um, you know, got to know a lot of people. So I felt sort of very looked after and cared for, whereas, you know, pre-diagnosis I sort of felt quite isolated so it's it was very um it all those things totally affected how I sort of perceived my diagnosis and that's how it sort of turned into a good thing for me. When did the lasting effects and the and the the challenges the weight of those really start yeah. to impact you and and can you tell us a little bit about what are some of the things that you find on a daily basis that you have to adjust for or think more about or maybe are not able to do the ways fatigue in, impacts me is just with like, everything basically that's that's the easy way of explaining it but it's like most of all it it probably impacts emotionally because you sort of inevitably, or I myself at least inevitably, be pit myself against people around me and where I am in life and where they are and compare yourself against friends who are, you know, sort of well and, um, you know, getting jobs, moving on in life, graduating uni or, you know, even like buying a house and stuff. And, you know, and then um, I'm sort of, you know, I'm just at uni going through day to day I did write down it feels a little bit like a bit of a race with my own body because it's like you get up in the morning and some days you feel all right to do something. So I start doing a bit of uni work, go to a class or something. And then after three hours, just to the point where you feel you've caught up a bit, then you just crash and then you shatter, you go to bed, you rest, and then it all repeats the, the next day. And it's just like that day after day after day. So it gets really wearing and it can emotionally it does sort of like really wear you down and you know you can see it affecting the people around you because they're not sure why it's happening um or they think you're just being a bit lazy so it gets really difficult but i i constantly i constantly have to remind myself 
it's like shouldn't feel bad about it because it's so easy to fall into that like pit of like self-despair and that it's my fault i must be doing something wrong because everyone else is doing so well that it must must be me um but it's not you know it's like anyone who suffers from fatigue it's not you know our fault it's not your fault you know it's but it's an easy thing to fall into yeah it really is there's so much guilt and shame that can be attached with fatigue and in our previous conversation you had mentioned how it can affect how you see yourself as well as how other people see you and that interplay between the two as being particularly hard yeah no totally i mean like socially i think because of also having i take all these different meds for the non-functioning pituitary and everything and I you know you sort of socially you, you know I know when I started uni is probably a good example that I started got into a sort of good group of friends um, and I, I hit the point like a lot of people do with cancer it's like do I tell them I've had cancer and then on top of that it's like do I tell them that I have all these lasting side effects do I tell them that inevitably I'm going to reach a point where I can't push myself to keep up with them, where I'm going to sort of disappear a bit from daily life at some point? Um, and inevitably some people drop off because it's too much or they don't know how to respond to it or, you know, they're just not at a point to, you know, be able to sort of handle someone around them like that. Um, so... Yeah, it's sort of, I think it's sort of like a bit like masking that you sort of try and hide it so much because of the effect it has on those people around you and what that does to your own relationships. In terms of the medications that you take, I know you have an exhaustive (laughs) list, so no need to mention all of those, but kind of a sense of, is it daily... Is it self-injections? How much are you involved in monitoring your own levels of, um, in order to compensate for that pituitary gland? I'll just quickly shoot off some names. Um, So it's hydrocortisone tablets three times a day. There's levothyroxine in the morning. There's desmopressin nasal sprays. There's hydrocortisone emergency injections, um, there's human growth hormone injections, testosterone injections, um, and a few other bits on the side. Um, but but those sort of, like all those medications, it's I'm very much responsible for all apart from the testosterone injections, um, which has caused some conflict in hospital. But um, like the emergency hydrocortisone injections like those play a massive part in like day-to-day life just it because if i'm sick i need to have one of those so it's like do i eat this type of food do i i I even got to a point where i do i i have to force myself to stop laughing because i get so scared that i'm going to be sick um so it's like they all have a massive effect on you. That is highly unfair. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> because I can tell that you have a great smile and a great <laughs> laugh that to actually be actively thinking, okay, I've got to control this um, because yeah. of what the outcome can be really shows the extent of what, mm-hmm. of, you know, what you're, what you're dealing with. And, you know, you mentioned in there about the you know, difference opinions with the hospital when you are dealing with long-lasting effects, do you think being able to question your team or do something different than what your team recommends or what the protocol might be, do you feel like there needs to be more conversations about quality of life? hundred uh, percent, totally, yeah. Um, without, without a doubt, I mean, I, I think, like, quality of life it's it's so it's just not addressed like at, at all at least on my end it was never addressed and at the endocrine department it was never addressed to me um quality of life you know side effects from medications were never explained um what medications would physically do to my body were never explained i think that especially hit hard with testosterone and that because I hadn't like gone through, because all the effects of my brain tumor slowly killing the glands, and um, because that was happening from a very early age, I sort of never went through a full like male puberty. So to how go from like no facial hair to suddenly being on testosterone and having facial hair appear and having like long lasting sort of gender identity questions. And to not have been told much about those medications beforehand was massively altering to my own sense of identity. Um, And it's only sort of like recently that I've been in a place to actually be able to discuss that with doctors because beforehand I was too ill and you just believe in doctors. You just go, you just go with what they say because you think they have your best interest at heart. And it felt like for me, looking back on things, that that wasn't the case. And that if I hadn't had my mum by my side, I think, you know, I well, I couldn't imagine. I couldn't imagine having to have advocated for myself at 17 um, in situations about medication. So, yeah. yeah. And Roisin, how was that? I saw you nodding. How was it listening to Matt talk about that? You've really educated me a lot, Matt. Um, Thank you. So many things there that I just, the, the vast differences, although cancer is just the umbrella term, it's, there's so many things that I would never have thought of. Um, you're incredibly brave and to be dealing with that every day and taking the tablets every day. And yeah, you've, you've really educated me. And um, I can resonate with a few, a few little um, points that you made there that I can't resonate with at all, but your mum advocating for you, you said at the end there, like, um, although you were quite young as well, um, 17, but I was 28 and I still needed my mum to advocate for me. Um, That's, that's, uh, that really kind of struck a a little nerve with me because I'm thinking, yeah, she's she's great and I'm I'm sure your mum done great for you as well so that's really lovely to hear that she was there for you Um, the 
what you mentioned about feeling looked after in the hospital as well and prior to that you felt quite isolated that's quite similar to how I felt um, as well so that, that resonated with me a lot I actually made friends with quite a few of the nurses and uh, I was saying to Tatum just the other day that when I finished my treatment I actually missed them <laughs> so I used to go up to the ward and be like how are you doing <laughs> you know like they're like why are you checking in on us we're the nurses you know <laughs> thanks for being so honest as well and, and, and open about your journey oh, no, I, I took a lot from that Thank, thank you for being honest about yours. And yes, I to- totally agree with checking up on nurses and ward staff because I, uh, yeah, I did the same thing. I felt weird not not going up when I was there, whenever I was in hospital just to check on them. Yeah, 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 just for the checkup appointments, and then nip up to the ward and be like, "Hello, remember <laughs> <laughs> me?" <laughs> oh, that's so lovely to have those relationships during that time, and and also. You know, I know um, having those conversations like that, that confidence then to have conversations coming from a good place with your team of like, actually, you know, you are the experts in your body and you know the things that are not working for you or that maybe could be done better and having that space while keeping those amazing connections um and Roisin what what's one of the things that you advocated for yourself that was a little off off label yeah my, my doctors uh wouldn't be too happy with me at that point and, and the nurses would be a bit iffy but uh again for a, sort of two or three weeks at a time getting my chemo and they would generally insist that I stayed in over the weekend to keep an eye on me. Um, I knew that nothing was happening at the weekend. The doctors were all away. Um, unless there was an emergency, then I wasn't really required to be there. So if I knew my markers were all good, um, I, would, I would discharge myself. Uh, and it, I mean, they couldn't really fight with me. They weren't going to say, well, you can't come back, you know? <laughs> so I tried to use that to my advantage. I'd be like, um, yeah, I'd, I'd go home for the weekend. I knew that I would recover well in my own space, have my own bed, didn't have doors banging in the corridor or machines going off or yeah. buzzers and and the, the comfort of the home smells and having my mum around me and my family. And yeah, I just knew that mentally my recovery was just as important. Um, and that, yeah, so it, it was a bit off. Uh, the doctors generally would kind of wagging their fingers at me you know Um, (laughs) but I'm still here so it obviously worked for me (laughs) you know I think there is like a a sense of where you can taking some control you know especially when you see a way that's going to work better for you to be able to to say that and speak up about that and you know I think that doctors aren't always taking on board um you know gender identity and they're not always taking on board just how hard it is to sleep overnight in a ward you know they don't really realize quite you know when you need that sleep desperately and um so i'm i'm really glad for both of you that you were able to kind of find find your way with those and and speaking of kind of finding your way matt you had said like in the beginning you kind of looked at it as a positive thing when did that change in terms of acknowledging that actually 
this was a, a really hard thing. So I think it it definitely there was a definite change because it's something I thought of thought a bit about you know a couple of years after diagnosis, but um, the massive change was going to uni and going from a system where I you know I I was discharged from uh, the cancer hospital and immediately went into sort of different rehabilitation programs or, or um you know programs about memory loss and I always had something to do with hospitals and then going to uni and suddenly being told there's a deadline for this essay in three weeks um you've got classes three days a week up until then um you've got to fit your normal life in around it and hospital appointments and to not have sort of the uh, people just with an innate understanding of what's going off because they haven't read my like five book medical record um and it sort of felt like hitting a brick wall because like all of a sudden because I'd got all these deadlines and stuff going on and it it was so such a massive change and it it really sort of shattered my self-identity again um, because you sort of you know I'd built my identity not purposely but it sort of been built around hospitals and now all of a sudden that didn't really count for anything it totally changed my view on my own diagnosis and I thought well it's not really good anymore because yeah it gave me these opportunities and in a way it sort of helped me get to uni but now it's just all negative effects um, with work, uni, the people around me, um, it was all impacting negatively. So that was a massive shift for me. Yeah. Oh, that's huge, huge. And so during that time was really a, a time to kind of find a new almost way of looking at it that kind of integrates the the opportunities that you got but also acknowledges the the loss and the grief um of the things that yeah other people are doing with you know a certain amount of ease that you have so many more considerations on and i know that you went to the shine reset program was that a space for you to be able to think about that a little bit more I mean, yeah, the Shine Reset program. Um, yeah, it it was a uh, yeah, it was great because you sort of it was a place. I think like most people said, a lot of people said about Shine is that you, it's people who get it. Um, and you know, we a lot of the stuff we spoke about was that you know just between each other was that how just people didn't understand and being able to be around people who understood and sort of got what you were going through. And that was incredibly validating because before it felt like I was just alone, you know, um, just me going through this. But being around people who got it was a massive difference. Yeah. And sort of it opened up that path to sort of start thinking about things and processing what happened. Mm. And I'm on track to see a therapist come March, you know, to sort of properly go through these things. So yeah, it was yeah, big change. Yeah. I see this with quite a few people that especially were diagnosed younger. You know, there are different stages of your life that you have different coping strategies. And what can be challenging is not knowing that they might change at some point. At some point they might stop working. And yeah. that 
there's still support there for you even if that happens that you know you don't have to be in acute cancer treatment to still get that support and that's like one of the things that shine you know people have come along years afterwards going i just hit my wall um and and having a place to yeah kind of freely talk about it and you know this shit's not easy um yeah, yeah totally i think again not not trying to just push shine but i think i think the fact that like even just like the age brackets being so open you know 20s to like 40s and stuff i think you look at younger years charities and they have like sort of five or maybe 10 year age brackets and it's like that's fine but i got out of that five-year range and my coping strategies were working still mm. and then two years out of that and they weren't so finding shine in it being that big open space to sort of work through these things throughout my life yeah. and have that support that's a massive thing yeah and it's Rosh- like a big comfort blanket <laughs> oh i love that <laughs> oh, excellent i mean i'm adding to that big comfort blanket adding a cup of tea really nice biscuits you know all the things um roisin can you share with me um what your next adventure is because i know you've got some exciting things coming up so shortly after my treatment um decided to buy a camper van because i couldn't really book holidays and without the the sort of threat of another appointment popping up or a surgery just slipping in um, so I done a little bit of traveling around the west of scotland around ireland in my camper van and, and i I loved it so much, I decided it was time for an upgrade so I could go further afield when the time was right. Um, so I'd been in touch with um, some friends who actually own a conversion company, Maxine Powering, and they uh, invited me down to Wales to see where they sort of make their units, which are all very kind of next level. <laughs> I'm an advocate for it, what can I say? Um, but they, yeah, they have this, this camper van company, Outlandish Campers, and they asked me to jump on board with them. And I sold my old camper van and I've got, um, I've got a, a decommissioned ambulance, like a passenger ambulance, which the irony <laughs> on the van me just yesterday that I spent three years in and out of ambulances and now I have my own. <laughs> um, Again, owning the narrative. Yeah. <laughs> owning the, the ambulance. ambulances, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, we're going to be converting this ambulance into a very kind of comfortable, stylish camper van. Um, they've asked me to join the Outlandish Campers family. So, I now uh, have the Scottish sister. Um, which is outlandish. Um, so I started up uh, a sort of an Instagram page and it allows people to follow my conversion journey and my um, adventures that will follow. And it's very useful having a boyfriend who's a great photographer. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I'm not very good at taking pictures or making the content. So yeah, it's, it's good to have him on board as well. Oh, and you had um, mentioned that having a boyfriend that's a photographer has also increased your confidence about being photographed. Generally, I would do sort of silly selfies before all of this, but because of, I am conscious of uh, the sort of 
the disfigurement on my jaw and in my face. Um, I would sort of avoid viewing pictures or if I had to view a picture, I'd have to be checking to see if I was uh, happy with it or, mm. you know, just generally not very confident in front of the camera, but he's slowly easing me out of that now. And, uh, yeah, it's, I'm getting there with it. I'm not fully there. Um, but yeah, he definitely brings that out in me Aww. a lot more. And can I ask how you met? Uh, yeah, so I see it as a bit fateful. I, um, <clears throat> that, that sort of, when you're looking for something, you won't find that sort of situation happened. Um, I'd decided to join the dating sort of online uh, uh, world again shortly after sort of getting my hair back and feeling a bit more myself. I uh, wasn't getting anywhere. Like, like many people with the online dating, it's just a bit of a, a pull uh, you have to try and navigate. Um, I got chatting to him anyway and we met briefly. Uh, he's from a town two hours away from where I live. And uh, shortly after you know, connecting, I just my confidence took a dip again. I just didn't feel it was the right time because he lived two hours away. I was thinking of the journey and yeah, conversation kind of slipped away side. And then <clears throat> and just a year later, um, I went into my local pub for a pub quiz one night. I wasn't even meant to be there. I was meant to be at a friend's house after her engagement, but her plans changed. And I was there with my makeup and all dressed, ready to go. And I, I messaged a friend and said, do you fancy the pub quiz last minute? Come on. So we were sitting in the pub and this guy walks in and I recognised him, but I couldn't quite place him. <laughs> and uh, eventually we got to working and it turned out it was the guy I'd been speaking to the year previous that I met very briefly before and yeah we've been together since so it was a bit of a fateful situation <laughs> totally totally and it's so lovely um hearing stories about people meeting their partner after diagnosis and and I love that one like that that it was a bit like oh wrong timing but then the right pub on the right night and it all came together yeah. Thank I'd you. totally given up um, on, the, on the, the sort of online date and I was just like, oh, this isn't for me. If it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it doesn't. So i just kind of given up hope on it. Um, so yeah, you never know what's around the corner. <laughs> you really, really don't. Um, and I know um, lots of people have loads of questions about dating after cancer. And like you were saying, Matt, like, you know, even with friends, like, you know, when do you tell them? How do you tell them? And, you know, all of that complicates what what is a normally complicated situation. But this conversation has been so interesting. Thank you so much to both of you um, for sharing. And if you're out there listening to this, thinking about the lasting effects that you have, and maybe you want a place to get some more support, to feel understood, just go for a drink with a bunch of people that will just nod their heads and say, yeah, we, yeah, we got that. Um, have a look at shinecancersupport.org. There's loads of information on that website. I want to say a big thank you to my two guests. They're wonderful. And to Radio Facilities for recording us and for supporting us and letting us do what we do. So till next time, 
Bye. Bye. Not your grandma's cancer show.